Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. And this message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman. It's known as Spurgeon's Gems. It's available online. Today's message is from volume one. It's number 47. Now, you may be asking, I wonder how many volumes there are, maybe two or three or five Actually, Perry Boardman has come up with 63 volumes of sermons of Charles Spurgeon. The man was prolific. We're going to read today the message, Christ's Prayer for His People. It was delivered on Sabbath morning, October 21, 1855, at the New Park Street Chapel in Southwark. The text is from John 17, 15. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. This prayer of Christ is an ever-precious portion to all true believers from the fact that each of them has an inalienable interest in it. Every one of us, beloved, when we listen to the words of Christ, should recollect that he is praying for us that while it is for the great body of his elect he intercedes in this chapter and the one preceding it, yet it is also for each believer in particular that he offers intercession. However weak we are, however poor, however little our faith, or however small our grace may be, our names are still written on his heart, nor shall we lose our share in Jesus' love. I will proceed at once to the discussion of the text, as my time is limited. First, there is a negative prayer. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. Second, there is a positive prayer, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. We have then a a negative prayer in this verse. I pray not that you would take them out of the world. Now, beloved, when we see persons converted to God, When men are turned from iniquity unto righteousness, from sinners into saints, the thought sometimes strikes us, would it not be good to take them at once to heaven? Would it not be an excellent thing to translate them speedily from the realms of sin to the breast of the Lord who loved them with an everlasting love? Would it not be wiser to take the young plants out of the chilly air of this world where they may possibly be injured and weakened and transplant them at once to the land where they may bloom in peace and tranquility forever? (laughs) Not so, however, does Jesus pray. When the man had the devils cast out of him, he said to Jesus, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. But Jesus said to him, Go to thy friends and relations, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee. Some men, when they are converted are all for going speedily to heaven, but they have not quite done with earth yet. They would like to wear the crown before bearing the cross. They desire to win without running and conquer without a battle. But their whim has no countenance from Jesus, for he exclaims, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. 
I shall first of all speak of the meanings of this prayer, and secondly, the reasons for this prayer, and thirdly, the doctrinal inferences that we may derive from it. Fourthly, the practical lessons it teaches, briefly on each point. First, the meanings of this prayer. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. Now, there are two senses in which this prayer may be understood. One is, he prays not that they should, by retirement and solitude, be kept entirely separate from the world. And the second, he asks not that they should be taken away by death. First, as regards retirement from the world and, and solitude. Some hermits and others have fancied that if we were to shut ourselves from the world and live alone, we would then be more devoted to God and serve Him better. Many men of old lived in deserts, never coming into the cities, wandering about alone, praying in caves and forests, thinking they were contaminated and rendered impure if once they mingled with mankind. And so we have among the Roman Catholics persons who act the part of hermits, living far from the common haunts of men and conceiving that by so doing they shall abundantly serve God. There are also certain orders of monks and nuns who live almost alone, seeing only their fellows, and fancying that by seclusion they are putting honor upon God and winning salvation for themselves. Now, it's too late in the day for any of us to speak against monasticism. It has demonstrated its own fallacy. It was found that some of those men who had separated from society were guilty of more vile and vicious practices and sinned more grossly than men who were in the world. There are not many who can depart from the customs of social life and in solitude maintain their spirit pure and unsullied. Why, brethren, common sense tells us at once that living alone is not the way to serve God. It may be the way to serve self and wrap ourselves in a garment of self-satisfaction, but it cannot be the way to worship God truly. If it be possible by this means to fulfill one part of the great law of God, we cannot possibly carry out the other portion, to love our neighbor as ourselves, for we thus become unable to bind up the brokenhearted, to bring the wanderer back, or to win souls from death and sin. Out of the heart proceeds all evil, and if we were in retirement, we should sin because we should carry our hearts with us into whatever solitude we entered. If we could but once get rid of our hearts, if there were some means of rendering our natures perfect, then we might be able to live alone. But as we now are, that door must be well enforced that would keep out the devil. That cell must be much secluded so that sin cannot enter. I heard of a man who thought he could live without sin if he were to dwell alone. So he, he took a pitcher of water and a store of bread and provided some wood and shut himself up in a solitary cell, saying, Now I shall live in peace. But in a moment or two he chanced to kick the pitcher over, and he thereupon used an angry expression. Then he said, I see it's possible to lose one's temper even when alone. And he at once returned to live among men. 
but it may be understood in a second sense. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of this world by death. That is a sweet and blessed mode of taking us out of the world, which will happen to us all by and by. In a few more years, the chariot of fire and the horses of fire will take away the Lord's soldiers. But Jesus does not pray that one of his chosen people should be too soon removed. He does not desire to see his newly begotten souls plume their wings and fly aloft to heaven until their time shall come. How frequently does the wearied pilgrim put up the prayer, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then would I fly away and be at rest. But Christ does not pray like that. He leaves it to his Father until, like shocks of corn fully ripe, we shall each of us be gathered into our master's garner. Jesus does not plead for our immediate removal by death. He asks that we may do well in the world, but he never asks for us to be gathered in before we are ripe. Thus I have explained two meanings of the words, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world, either by living retired from men or being taken away by death. Now the second point. The reasons for this petition. These reasons are threefold. Christ does not pray that we should be taken out of the world because our abode here is for our own good and for the world's benefit and for his glory. First, it would not be for our own good to be taken out of this world. I leave out the first idea of the text and only speak of it concerning death. We conceive that the greatest blessing we shall ever receive of God is to die. But doubtless it would not be for our good to withdraw from this world as soon as we had escaped from sin. It's better for us to tarry a little while, far better. The reasons for this are, first, because a little stay on earth will make heaven all the sweeter. Nothing makes rest so sweet as toil. Nothing can render security so pleasant as a long exposure to alarms and fears and battles. No heaven will be so sweet as a heaven which has been preceded by torments and pains. I think the deeper draughts of woe we drink here below, the sweeter will be those draughts of eternal glory which we shall receive from the golden bowls of bliss. The more we are battered and scarred on earth, the more glorious will be our victory above, when the shouts of a thousand times ten thousand angels welcome us to our Father's palace. The more trials, the more bliss, the more sufferings, the more ecstasies, the more depression, the higher the exaltation. Thus we shall gain more of heaven by the sufferings we shall pass through here below. Let us not then, my brethren, fear to advance through our trials. They are for our good. To stop here a while is for our benefit. Why? Well, we should not know how to converse in heaven if, if we had not a few trials and hardships to tell of and some tales of delivering grace to repeat with joy. An old sailor likes to have passed through a few shipwrecks and storms, however hazardous they may have been. For if he anchors in Greenwich Hospital, he will there tell with great pleasure to his companions of his hairbreadth escapes. There will be some old soldiers in heaven, too, 
who will recount their fights and how their master delivered them and how he won the victory and kept off all their foes. Again, we should not have fellowship with Christ if we did not stop here. Fellowship with Christ is so honorable a thing that it is worthwhile to suffer, that we may thereby enjoy it. You have sometimes heard me express a desire that I might be in the number of those who shall be alive and remain, and so shall escape death. But a dear friend of mine says he had rather die, in order that he might thus have fellowship with Christ in his sufferings. And methinks the thought finds an echo in my own breast. To die with Jesus makes death a perfect treasure. To be a follower in the grave with him makes death a pleasure. Moreover, you and I might be taken for cowards, although we may have fellowship with him in his glory, if we had no scars to prove the sufferings we had passed through and the wounds we had received for his name. And thus again, you see, it is for our good to be here. We should not have known fellowship with the Savior if we had not tarried here a little while. I would never have known the Savior's love half so much if I had not been in the storms of affliction. How sweet it is to learn the Savior's love when nobody else loves us, when friends flee away. What a blessed thing it is to see that the Savior does not forsake us, but still keeps us and holds fast by us and clings to us and will not let us go. Oh, beloved brother and sister, believe that your remaining here on earth is for your eternal benefit. And therefore Jesus said, I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. Again, it is for the good of other people. I think we should all be willing to remain on earth for the good of others. Why may not saints die as soon as they are converted? For this reason, because God meant that they should be the means of the salvation of their brethren. You would not surely wish to go out of the world if there were a soul to be saved by you. Methinks if I could go to glory before I had converted all the souls allotted to me, I should not be happy. But that would be impossible, for God will not shut his saints in till they have been spiritual fathers to those appointed. We do not wish to enter heaven till our work is done, for it would make us uneasy on our beds if there were one single soul left to be saved by our means. Tarry then, Christian. There is a brand to be plucked out of the fire, a sinner to be saved from his sins, a rebel to be turned from the error of his ways, and mayhap that sinner is one of your relatives. Mayhap, poor widow, you are spared in this world because there is a wayward son of yours, not yet saved. And God has designed to make you the favored instrument of bringing him to glory. And you hoary-headed Christian, it may be that through the, though the grasshopper is a burden to you, and you long to go, you're kept here because one of your offspring, by your instrumentality, is yet to be saved. Tarry then, for your son's sake, who came from your loins. I know how deeply you love him, and for his sake surely you are content to be left here a little, counting it for the best that you may bring in your son to glory with you. But the third reason is because it is for God's glory. 
A tried saint brings more glory to God than an untried one. I do verily think in my own soul that a believer in a dungeon reflects more glory on his master than a believer in paradise. I believe that a child of God in the burning, fiery furnace whose hair is yet unscorched and upon whom the smell of the fire has not passed displays more of the glory of Godhead than even he who stands with a crown upon his head perpetually singing praises before the eternal throne. Nothing reflects so much honor on a workman as a trial of his work and its endurance of it. And so with God. It honors him when his saints preserve their integrity. Peter honored Christ more when he walked upon the water than when he stood upon the land. There was no glory given to God by his walking on solid shore, but there was glory reflected when he trod upon the water. Peter saw the Lord coming on the water, and he said to him, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come to thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. What may we not go through, Christians, at his command? Oh, methinks we could rise and cut Agag to pieces and hew the devil himself and break his head through the power of Jesus. It is then for the glory of Jesus that we yet tarry. If my lying in the dust would elevate Christ one inch higher, I would say, Oh, let me remain, for it is sweet to be here for the Lord. And if to live here forever would make Christ more glorious, I would prefer to live here eternally. If we could but add more jewels to the crown of Christ by remaining here, why should we wish to be taken out of the world? We should say it is blessed to be anywhere where we can glorify him. The third point is the doctrinal inference that we may derive from this prayer. The first inference Death is God taking the people out of the world, and when we die, we are removed by God. Death is not an independent being who comes at his own will to carry us away when he pleases. In fact, it is not true that death takes away the Christian at all. God alone can remove his children from this world. Whether the humble peasant or the reigning monarch, one hand lifts them to the sky You'll see this by referring to the Revelation where the vintage of the wicked is gathered by an angel, but the harvest of the righteous is reaped by Christ himself. And another angel came out of the temple which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar which had power over the fire and cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle. And gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth, and gathered the vine of the earth, and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. These were the wicked. But if you go to the preceding passage, it says, And I looked, and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle, and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud 
thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Christ is the reaper who cuts his own corn. He won't trust an angel to do it. God alone has the issues of life in his hand. The next thing is that dying is not of one half so much importance as living to Christ. I pray not that thou shouldst take them out of the world. He does not make their dying an object of prayer, but that thou shouldst keep them from the evil. He prays that they should be preserved in life, knowing that their death would assuredly follow rightly as a matter of course. Many say one to the other, Have you heard that so-and-so is dead? How did he die? They should rather say, How did he live? (laughs) It may be an important question. How does a man die? But, But the most important one is, How does a man live? What curious notions people get about death. The question they ask is not whether a man dies in the Lord Jesus, but has he had a a very easy death? Uh, Did he die gently? If so, they conclude that all is well. But if I ask, had he any affection to trust in Christ? The reply probably will be, well, at all events, I I, I thought he had. He, He had a very easy death. People think so much of an easy death. If there are no pains in death, If they are not in trouble, not plagued like others, they falsely conclude all to be well. But though like sheep they are laid in the grave, they may awaken to destruction in the morning. It's not a sign of grace that our dying is easy. It's natural for persons in the decay of strength to die easily. Many of the most vicious men who have destroyed the power of their bodies have an easy, painless death from the fact that there is nothing to struggle against death. But then, though they die like lambs, they wake up in sorrow. Do not put any confidence in deathbeds, my dear friends. Do not look on them as evidences of Christianity. The great evidence is not how a man dies, but how he lives. We'll go to Roman numeral 4 next time. We're about halfway through this message. Thank you so much for your attention today. Do look around the site at the 3,000 plus audios that we have. Uh, we have other great preachers, persecution stories from North Korea in English and Korean. We have Bible studies on a number of subjects. We have a blog. If you want more fellowship, just consider buying one of my books at Amazon.com or contact me at bob.j.faulkner.com. Dot 72 at gmail.com and I'll share details of our Saturday evening Zoom meeting for men and our Tuesday noon meeting for men and women. Well, this is the Hackberry House of Chosun. This audio is being released on the 28th of February, 2023. And Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>